Our sermon text today is 1 Peter chapter 1. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and follow along as I read the text. 1 Peter chapter 1. We continue in our study. Uh, we're calling God's people through this uh, wonderful epistle. Begin reading in verse 13, and I'll read uh, to verse 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Well, I pray that you would incline our hearts to your word today. Give us a teachable spirit. Help us to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to sanctify us through and through. We pray this today in Jesus' good name. Amen. Some young police cadets had an exam with just one question. You're in your uniform. You notice smoke coming from a house. You go over to check it out, and you gather that there's a family inside. The smoke is so intense that it travels to the highway and causes a massive pileup. One car veers off in order to avoid collision, but actually flips the car in the process and rolls down a hill into a river. Suddenly then, there's this pileup, and out of one of the cars jumps the most wanted criminal in the country. Question, what do you do? The shortest answer from one student was this. I would remove my uniform and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. <laughs> I would remove my uniform and move unobtrusively with the crowd. We, we have that kind of temptation as a Christian to remove our uniform, as it were, to, to remove the badge that says we belong to Jesus Christ and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. But Peter says we must be different. We must be holy. We must be who we are. In order to do that, we have to uh, have a close look at this text where Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Holiness, which is the subject uh, for today, is about living out our Christian identity in a corrupt and hostile world. It involves living out our calling to be holy as he is holy. And to do that, we have to be driven by the gospel. Peter talks to us here about gospel-driven holiness. That is, he weaves gospel reminders in and out of this passage as he calls us 
uh, to be holy. And that's very important. We'll, we'll see what some of those, uh, we'll dive deeper into some of those gospel uh, doctrines here in just a moment. Um, and with that, I, I think it's very important whenever you talk about a subject like holiness to kind of clear the runway, as it were, and uh, make some clarifications and distinctives about what holiness, uh, biblical holiness is and what it is not. So let me just provide a few clarifications before we look at these verses. I think that to, a, a starting place when you think about this topic, this doctrine of our personal holiness, you need to distinguish between positional and practical holiness. Okay? Positionally, as a Christian, we are holy. We just read a text in Ephesians 1 earlier that we are chosen uh, in him, right, uh, to be holy and blameless. Uh, there is already a positional nature in which we are justified, we are declared righteous, we are holy. But practical holiness is what Peter is calling us to here, and that is a, a life of holiness. Now, when it comes to practical holiness, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions. Uh, so let me just mention a few of them. Practical holiness is not isolationism. We are to picture, when we picture holiness, Jesus Christ. Not a monk who lives on the side of a cliff, okay, uh, removed from everyone, or uh, living in a combine down in uh, Waco, Texas, uh, right? But, but holiness, it, it, Jesus was around sinners, and, and obviously uh, we will be as well. He was separate from sin, but not isolated from people. Secondly, holy, practical holiness is not about external appearances. Uh, that's what pops into the mind of many people. It's not as though externals are unimportant. Peter will address some of that later in his epistle. Uh, but it's not primary. So we're not to picture, you know, a guy wearing a powdered uh, wig uh, uh, or, a, or, you know, living in the 1600s or a priestly collar or uh, something like that. Uh, it's not about external appearances. Remember, the Pharisees had external appearances. Uh, again, the picture is Jesus. Um, third, practical holiness is not boring. This is a misconception. Uh, some hear this, and maybe teenagers uh, you're watching, and you, when you hear the call to holiness, that sounds like you're giving up fun. You're giving up uh, enjoyment. But I would beg to differ with you, as the Bible does. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the holy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That word blessed is a rich word. Satisfied, uh, happy uh, uh, are, are those who are pursuing holiness. The reason there's so little happiness in the world is there's so little holiness in the world. So don't pit these two against each other. Jesus tells us you will actually have enjoyment. You'll actually have delight when you are pursuing holiness, not when you're running away from God. Another misconception is that holiness is just really not that important, that it's kind of, uh, you know, it's a periphery kind of issue. And uh, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that this is the will of God, our holiness. And so there is nothing that could be more important than the will of God for us. And this is, this is where we start when it comes to the will of God is our own practical holiness. And I would add that practical holiness is not only important because it's so central to the Christian life, but because your holiness, your godliness, will make up for many of your deficiencies. We all have deficiencies. Uh, we all have weaknesses. Uh, but holiness will make up uh, uh, for many of those deficiencies. Um, Robert Mary McShane uh, said it well when he said, It is not great talents that God so much blesses as it is great likeness to Jesus. 
And so with that in mind, uh, let's look at this text. And I want to, to just uh, give you some exhortations that Peter lays out for us in this text. Number one, live in the power and hope of your new identity. Live in the power and hope of your new identity. The, the word therefore is very important. It's always important in the Bible. And here it's important as Peter is linking what he just said with the exhortations that will follow. What, was, what did he just say? He had just talked about grace. Remember we said last week that he summarized this entire doxology with, uh, about our salvation with one word, grace. Right? About the grace that was yours, that the prophets spoke about. So the, the exhortations that follow now depend on the grace that was just expounded in verses 3 to 12. The call to holiness is rooted in the realities of grace. Uh, the way we often say it in theology is that uh, the imperative is based on the indicative. An indicative that is a statement about who we are uh, that, and an imperative of what we are to do. The imperative is based on the indicative. We must never reverse the order. Otherwise, we end up with a works-based righteousness. We are not earning uh, salvation here, but rather we're living out of the realities of grace, of who God calls us to be. And one of the things that Peter does so beautifully in this letter is describe for us our identity. And in fact, let me just give you a few uh, of those citations. Verse 14, he calls us children. In uh, verse 15 and later in 2.9, we are called. In verse 17 of our text, we can call God Father. In verse 18, we have been ransomed. In verse 22, we have purified our souls. 23, we are born anew. Chapter 2, verse 2, we're newborn infants. Chapter 2, verse 5, we are living stones, spiritual houses, holy priesthood. Chapter 2, verse 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are recipients of mercy, chapter 2, verse 10, who used to not be God's people, but now are God's people. Chapter 2, verse 11, we're sojourners. And that's just picking out a few of the references. That is a rich identity. This is who we are as Christians. And all of these phrases, right, show us that there has been a fundamental change that has taken place in our lives. So praise God, Christian, this is true about you. We, we don't have to uh, search for an identity. We don't have to, we're not earning an identity. Our identity is not based upon our performance. Our identity is based on what, the, what God says about us. And all of that is true. Now, many people today don't feel good about themselves or they're constantly seeking approval for others. And I just want to say, you will always have insecurity issues as long as you fail to believe what God says about you. And that, that requires faith. You have to believe what the Bible is saying about you. Our identity is not based on worldly standards. If it is, practically, we will either be driven to pride or despair. But our identity is in Jesus. And if you try to find an identity in anything else, it will shrink the life out of you. Right? Now, this identity means we have power to pursue holiness. So as we prepare to look at these exhortations, these imperatives, this means that we have power to do so. We have experienced new birth, right? Jesus is alive. We have a living hope. Uh, the Spirit is indwelling us. We are the new covenant people of God. 
And this identity fills us with hope. In fact, look how Peter says that at the end of verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verses 13 and verse uh, 21 are the bookends of this passage, and they're bookended by hope. Do you see that? We are setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us. And later he says there in verse 21 that um, our faith and our hope are in God. Now hope is very important when it comes to holiness because as we look forward to the grace that is brought to us, it changes the way we live now. Just the way if you're uh, counting down the days for something, uh, it, it, it kind of uh, it gets you focused. It, it makes you uh, think a certain way. And Peter wants our Christian lives to be rooted in the realities of the grace that will come to us. Uh, grace will be revealed. It's similar to the way uh, John in his letter <clears throat> uses uh, future hope to uh, bring about a change in us presently when he says in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's a, not, it's a now and a, and a not yet. We are his children now, but I love this. What we will be um, has not appeared. Uh, we can only imagine. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And then he adds, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he himself is pure. This hope has a purifying effect. And so we think on uh, the grace that will be brought to us. And I love how Peter says, he summarizes the coming of Jesus here as grace appearing. The grace that will be revealed to us. In the Didache, one of the earliest uh, Christian documents, um, there's, there's several uh, uh, unique uh, portions of, of that little uh, book uh, regarding the church life and the gospel and so on. But in one section on <clears throat> the Lord's Prayer, excuse me, the Lord's Supper, um, the, the prayer that is uh, provided in the Didache says, let grace come and let this world pass away. Um, and that, that's very similar here to Peter. Grace will come. It's re it, will, it will not be hidden. It will be revealed. So uh, Peter says, live, live in the power and hope of your new identity. Secondly, realize that you're in a war. Verses 13 and 14. The coming of Christ doesn't mean we live with an idle wishfulness. Because that, that could be where some people go in their mind, right? That Jesus is coming, therefore there's, no, there's no, nothing to really uh, be serious about now. But rather, Peter goes another direction and says the coming of Christ doesn't lead us to some pie in the sky, but rather a, a mental resolve to avoid the allurements of the enemy. And we are to do this until we see Christ. Right now, we're in a battle. We're in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, and notice how Peter uh, teases this out, this mental and internal war. Verse 13, he says, prepare your mind for action. He says to be sober-minded, right? Uh, he says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your flesh. And then this verse over in chapter 2, verse 11. Notice how he speaks of this war. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which are doing what? They're waging war against your soul. So we're in a battle. And we have to realize we're in a battle. 
Uh, we watched the movie 1917 this past week, and it is an intense movie of these two British soldiers uh, doing some heroic work uh, in, in that uh, war. When you're in a war, you're vigilant, right? Um, you're alert. You are, are paying attention. And that's the idea here. You're sober-minded. You're alert. You're, you're vigilant. Uh, because it is so intense. Very interesting phrase here, uh, prepare your mind for action. It's almost untranslatable in English, and so it's uh, actually paraphrased by uh, English translations. The, the old uh, and more wooden translation is gird up the loins of your mind, <laughs> which is not where I normally think of my loins. Uh, but it was, it was a, a phrase about as, as men uh, wore robes during that time, they would tie them up around their waist to do when they were doing strenuous uh, activity. Uh, interesting side note, in seminary my intramural football team was called the girded loins uh, because we, we like this phrase so much. Um, but today, uh, you know, prepare your mind for action, that gets at it, but it would also be like, uh, you know, roll up your sleeves, uh, put your chin strap on, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing where, where you are ready for a battle. And he says, be sober-minded. That is, avoid being uh, uh, impaired, intoxicated by not just alcohol, but anything, right? But live with a clarity of mind. Later, he uses the same phrase, sober-mindedness, in chapter 4, verse 7, to speak of prayer. He says, uh, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's quite hard to pray when you're not sober-minded. Um, he says in chapter 5, verse 8, regarding the devil, that it's important that we remain sober-minded. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around. And so we're in a battle, we're in a war. We, we, every day you, you, you uh, get your mind ready, realize you're in this war, okay? And you live with a certain clarity and focus. Now the negative command is in verse 14 when he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's that same idea that you see in Romans 12, right? To not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Um, as one paraphrase says in Romans 12, I like it, says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold, um, but, but to think differently, to think with a renewed mind. Now, we have to remember this, Christian, this battle never stops. <laughs> Sin never sleeps. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't matter if we're in a lockdown. Satan's not on a lockdown. <laughs> He's prowling around. And so we have to re realize this. I had a talk one time with one of my sons. I, I always, you know, I, I would take my sons on these uh, uh, dinner outings to talk about uh, personal things. And as they were advancing in school and they're about, about to get in certain uh, uh, biology and health classes, I thought it would be good to, to, to go ahead and have a, a really, you know, frank talk about uh, life and, and those kinds of things. So I asked one of them, where would you like to go eat to have this talk about, uh, you know, sexuality and stuff? And so he picked Golden Corral. And so uh, I'll never forget uh, the day we went into the Golden Corral and we had the talk. Uh, and I, I won't let you in on everything that we talked about, uh, but I don't know why it's so funny, Brett. You, as soon as I said Golden Corral, you started laughing. Um, uh, and we, it was, it, anyway, I told him, listen, you need to realize that 
every day it's a battle. And there are people that actually get paid to entice you to sin. <laughs> you know, that's, that's their job. And you've got, a de- you've got the devil. You've got your flesh. And you have, to, you have to be ready for war every day. You have to live out that vision in Galatians 5. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Very, very concise verse on holiness. If you will walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Number three, Peter teaches us to embrace our holy calling. Every Christian has this calling, as he says in verse 14, as obedient children. This is who we are. We are uh, God's children if we are in Christ. So we are to bear the Father's resemblance. And one of the ways we do that is by pursuing practical holiness. Theologians call holiness a communicable attribute. (laughs) Um, That is one you can catch rather than an incommunicable attribute. It's not that we will be as holy as God, of course, but it is something that God shares with us and God demands of us. Uh, An incommunicable attribute would be something like God's omnipotence. Uh, or his omniscience. He is all-powerful and he knows all things, and we, of course, do not, which is why you don't see a command, uh, be omnipotent as God is omnipotent. (laughs) But we are to share in this holiness. Now, what is this holiness? Well, it's more than morality, uh, right? Uh, When Isaiah gets that great vision of the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, he is saying, holy, 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 kadesh, kadesh, kadesh. He's not saying morality, 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 right? So it it includes that, but it's not limited to that, nor is it just the idea of being separate um, because it's not separate, separate, separate. (laughs) Be separate for I am separate. Um, It actually uh, is uh, what it means to be God is for God to be holy. And because he is holy, there's a a separateness, there's an otherness, that is an implication of that. So the text then is not, the, of course, calling us to be God, but what it means is to be so bound up with God that our lives are lived to his glory. Holiness is about being fully devoted to God. Like those uh, utensils in the Old Testament in the, uh, with, with the priesthood and, and all of the rituals that went with that, those utensils were, were used to the glory of God. They were, uh, we, we, we make ourselves available to God and we are devoted to God. Holiness is about being so bound up with him that our great aim in life is to glorify him. Now, to do this, to be motivated to do this, we need a number of things. And one of them is a high view of God. Right? When it says, be holy for I am holy, if you don't have the latter part of that phrase settled in your heart deeply, he's holy. Then there will be a lack of inspiration to pursue it. It is fueled also by gratitude to God. Chapter 2, verse 9, when he says, you have been called to this, to to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your identity as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation is fueled by gratitude. You have been called out of darkness into his light. Therefore, walk in light. And you notice here that it is a pervasive lifestyle. Holiness is about... Um, involves our conduct. You see that phrase a number of times in uh, Peter's letter. Be holy all your conduct. Verse 17. Uh, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Later in the letter, 
He talks about it in verse 12, about keeping our conduct honorable. Uh, then that word appears again when he's talking about marriage, about uh, wives having a particular conduct that puts the gospel on display. And when he talks about our witness to a watching world in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says that we should have a certain kind of behavior when we are reviled. So that's important because holiness, again, is not just about separation from evil. It's also about the dedication to righteousness, about a certain kind of, of lifestyle. In uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, uh, we'll look at that next week, but there's also important when you think about this calling to be holy, the need to believe that Jesus Christ is better than sin. I mean, this is so important, and that's where Peter is going to take us next uh, in just a second into pondering the worth of Jesus. And because holiness is, it involves a battle of the wills, we have to believe that there is a superior satisfaction in Jesus than there is in sin, than in temptation. I mean, you don't want to go after a rice cake if someone offers you a ribeye. <laughs> like, uh, Jesus is better. I mean, who wants a, a rice cake? The only person I know is A-Rod. He, he said he loved, uh, uh, that's our A-Rod, by the way, if you're watching from outside, not the baseball player. We have the true and better A-Rod. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you've ever went to the grocery store, though, when you're starving. Everything looks good. <laughs> and you're like, man, I think I would like to try some rice cakes. And no, you wouldn't. You don't want a rice cake. <laughs> but when you're hungry, you'll eat just about anything. And our, we are passionate beings. Like, we will consume stuff, and we have, to, um, we have to believe that what is most satisfying is Jesus Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart, happy, satisfied. Well, verse uh, 17 leads us to number four. Peter calls us to live before the eyes of the Father when he says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, I already covered this a couple of weeks ago, but Peter's writing to scattered Christians across uh, modern-day Turkey. They've likely been expelled from Rome after Claudius's edict, and now these Christians are double, double strangers. They've been exiled out of Rome, uh, their homeland, the natural homeland, and they're also not in heaven. Uh, and so they, they're, they're in double exile. And he's saying to them, regardless of where you live, Realize that you live before the eyes of the Father. That's an important thing for us to see as well as we're living in, in some kind of uh, exile here. And Peter puts, notice, two things together that people often want to separate. That is, God as Father and as Judge. And part of the reason there's a lack of reference, a re reverence for God, I think, is that there's also a a lack of reverence in the family unit today as well. Uh, there's a lack of reverence for mom, dad, coach, teacher, etc. And so we need a revival of honor and a revival of reverence. We need to realize it is a privilege to call God Father, and we are to live in awe of our Father. I love how Psalm 103 puts this together. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Compassion and reverence, compassion and fear in the same verse. You know, an analogy of this, albeit an imperfect analogy, is a healthy relationship with a dad and his son. You know, you got the little son, you got little Johnny, maybe he's two years old, and he sees you from across the room and he just takes off running at you. 
And, you know, if you're as big as, as, as some dads like Bret Hart, you know, you can just grab them with one hand, a little, little tiny uh, little Johnny. And then, you know, dads like to roll around and wrestle on the ground with their, their sons. And they can roll around, but, but you know, secure them in, in their arms. Uh, but let's say little Johnny, after this, this uh, fun wrestling match that just the air was filled with laughter and, and pleasure, smacks dad in the face. You know, then it's time for the giggling to be over, and uh, Dad would grab little Johnny and uh, say, uh, you don't smack Daddy. There's intimacy and authority. There's delight and discipline. We call God Father, and it is a privilege, but he is also an impartial judge. He is to be enjoyed, and he is to be in, uh, and he is to be revered. We are accountable to this God. Peter is telling us here. Accountability, it's not the only motivation for holiness, but it is one of them. He knows all and sees all. He's an impartial judge. Some of you may recall in 1988 when Ben Johnson from Canada won uh, the gold medal, but later it was found that he uh, used an illegal substance and his medal was taken away. God sees it all. We, we cannot fake it, right? Now, again, this is not a terror for a Christian. We're not living in terror of God, but we are living in awareness and awe. It means that wherever we're at, we live before his eyes. It's, it's like Joseph in the Old Testament. You've heard me cite this story because it's so helpful to me, at least in thinking through these things. As Joseph was in Egypt, uh, the Bible says that he was a handsome man. And Potiphar's wife, that was uh, the lady's name in, in that story, Potiphar's wife, she was tempting Joseph every day uh, to commit adultery. And Joseph, in this moment, is away from his family. He's actually been betrayed by his family. No one's going to know. And what does Joseph say? He says, I will not sin against my God. I will not sin against my God. It's like David in Psalm 51 when he says, against you as he's repenting, which is a good psalm of repentance and maybe one that you need uh, today. When he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first reading because he sinned against a bunch of people. <laughs> He sinned against the country. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against uh, her husband. But fundamentally, he's exactly right. Because sin, first and foremost, is a sin against God. And so Peter says, live with a reverent fear before your father, wherever you're at in your exile. C.E.B. Cranfield, an old New Testament scholar, said, It is of God's infinite condescension that we are allowed to call him Father. You are not to presume on his goodness, but rather let it make you reverent and humble. He has not ceased to be the impartial judge of all men. The more truly, the more intimately we know him, the more of awe and reverence we should feel. Great summary, Dr. Cranfield. Number five, finally, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Verses 18 and, 20, uh, to, uh, and following, uh, to 21, he begins to talk to us about the sacrifice of Jesus. As we think today about soldiers who paid the ultimate price in uh, laying down their lives for the country, 
here is a, a text also that shows us this incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ who has laid down his life for us that we might be holy. We are to never forget him. We are to preach the gospel, the good news to ourselves every day. Reverence and awe and honor is not just about the recognition of judgment, but it is also fueled by a deep gratitude of what God has done for us in Christ. Um, John Owen, who who's written, who wrote, uh, you know, all uh, tons of books, material. I can't get my words out. Let me just quote him. He says, "Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls." Live in this. I love that. Live in this. And you will die a conqueror. You will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. If you will live in this, if you will live, he said elsewhere, fill your affections with the cross of Christ and there will be no more room for sin. You see, that's what we have to do in this battle. We have to live in this. And Peter helps us live in this throughout this particular letter as he has, he says so many incredible things about uh, the, the sacrifice of Jesus. Last week we looked at how he said it fulfilled prophecy. And now we see Jesus presented here as the ultimate Passover lamb who has provided the ultimate exodus. We see that this was a planned death later he will add that his death was an example for us. And then he brings out the significance of Jesus' death in chapter 2, verse 24, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And in chapter 3, verse 18, he died that we might be brought to God. Now, Peter says, knowing this, verse 18, now they already know this. That's why I'm saying you're preaching the gospel to yourself. It's not that you don't know this, but it's that we, we need to know it again. <laughs> We need to recover it. And you see again how Peter goes back and forth with the call to holiness and gospel uh, reminders. And that, that is the rhythm of the indicative and the imperative. He is, he's put a hard word out to us to be holy. And now he reminds us of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Don't remove your uniform. Don't remove the badge and mingle unobtrusively with the crowd. You belong to Jesus. Therefore, we should live differently. Don't forget who you are, Christian. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Now notice what Peter says in verse 18. He says, you've been ransomed from futility. I love that. Two images of redemption or ransom. In the Greek society, it was freeing a prisoner or a slave through a payment. And in uh, the other image from Jewish society, which is the Exodus, which is probably what Peter has in mind more here, of, um, of being freed from bondage uh, through the, the, the death of this uh, Passover lamb, through the redeeming, rescuing grace of God. But what Peter says here that's always struck me is that he doesn't um, say that we've been redeemed from guilt and sin or wrath, all of which are true, not here, the emphasis is on futility. <laughs> that Jesus saves us, not just from wrath, but stupid. <laughs> That's very important for us to remember. If you are redeemed, if you've been rescued, it's not so you can live a futile, meaningless, worthless, useless life. We've been redeemed for something. 
We're not just saved out of something, we're saved for something. And that for something is not futility. And praise God that the death of Jesus provides meaning to our lives right now. And so he says, don't go back to former ignorance. Don't go back to your futile ways. I always think about the old arcade game, uh, Galaga. I used to love to play Galaga, and I would come home from school. You know, when I was in sixth grade, I had my own pool stick. I had a motorcycle, and I would get my pool stick, and I would drive down to the pool hall, and I would, I would play uh, pool with these guys. But that we had one little arcade or two, one or two systems, and one of them was Galaga. And you run out of money, and, and what do you do? You know, the, 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 the screen comes up, and it says, game over. Now, what you're supposed to do in that moment is leave. <laughs> the game's over, pal. Move on. You have no more money, but what you do when you have a feudal life is you begin to continue to play as, as though it's paying some kind of attention to you. It's an exercise in futility. And for the Christian, we should live with a big game over sign when it comes to our former ways. That, that game is over. Jesus has redeemed you for something infinitely better. And it's come at a great price, he says in verse 18 and 19, the blood of Christ. By his blood, our sins have been forgiven and we have been brought to God. Hebrews says, by his blood, our consciences are cleansed. He says in Hebrews 10, 19, by his blood, we gain access to God in worship and prayer. John adds that we are progressively cleansed more and more by his blood. And Revelation says it's by his blood we're able to conquer the accuser of the brethren. So live in this, as Owen says. The person of Christ is underscored here. He is without blemish or spot. He is the pure one. The Passover lamb spared Israel from the wrath of God, but our Passover lamb has come to take away the sin of the world. The one who was perfectly holy was crucified to make the unholy holy. And this was a plan, verse 20, foreknown before the foundation of the world. This corresponds to chapter one, verse two, right? When he's talked about uh, the foreknowledge of God the Father, speaking of our salvation and here, he's showing us that the work of redemption was planned in advance. Jesus was manifested in the last times, at the right time, Galatians 4, 4. Jesus, it's important for us to keep in mind, and this text is one of those places, I think, to remember that Jesus was not a pathetic victim, but a victorious Savior who fulfilled the mission. He says, you do not take my life, I lay it down. And he did just at the right time. Through him, implications then, Peter says, we are believers in God. <laughs> We're believers. And it's through him that we have faith and hope in God. So right now, so something in the past, the death of Christ, is bearing present and future uh, ramifications. We have faith now. So it's kind of like Romans 8.32 when Paul says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? What happened in the past gives us confidence in the present and the future. We are believers in God in our faith and hope are in him. This is made possible through Jesus. Now, why does Peter, again, go to this exposition of the beauty of Jesus and his sacrificial death? Well, there is no holiness without a Christ-adoring heart. Holiness is not, again, primarily external. 
It is not about uh, you know, just saying no to some things, though it includes that. The engine that fuels holiness is a love for Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Holiness is about saying not just no to sin, it's about saying yes to Christ. Fill your affections with him and there'll be no room for sin. Stuart Briscoe uh, wrote a book several years ago, now it's dated and you'll, you'll, you'll hear that as I read it here about watching a man fall in love. And he says, it's fun to watch a man, young man fall in love. It can be even more fun when the romance is long distance. You can predict what will happen. There will be hours of late night and heart-pounding phone conversations. The postal service will be overrun with love notes crossing each other in the mail. Pillows will be soaked with tears. But the most telling symptom is the glazed, faraway look in Romeo's eyes. I'm sure you've seen it. You ask the man a question and you get a blank stare. (laughs) He's not at home. He's elsewhere. He's in another land. He is with his sweetheart. You might say his heart is set on things afar where Juliet is seated right by the telephone. That's being focused on another person. And I want to encourage you to do that daily with the Lord Jesus as you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you to set set aside time daily where your eyes glaze over as you focus on his beauty and his goodness and his glory to come. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Let's pray together. As our prayer, Father, that you would incline our hearts to the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ. Set our hope fully on grace that will be brought to us. I pray you would help us to live faithful, godly lives in this season, living before the eyes of our Father, who loves us, who enables us to call him Father. Lord Jesus, we adore you today. We worship you. There's none like you. There's none above you. Be pleased, be glorified with your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.